Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Monday, April 3rd, 2023. It's been 3,323 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 404 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Commands North, South, and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Some quick housekeeping. We are focusing on regional updates and critical news through April 26, 2023, as we launch our second podcast, Gen All. To be clear, this podcast isn't going anywhere. We're a small team with limited financial resources, so we have to be good stewards of our funds while respecting the time of our team, most of whom are volunteers, including yours truly. We are completely committed to reporting on the Russia-Ukraine war as long as it takes and as long as there's an audience. If in 12 years, when our chief content officer reaches retirement age, the war is still ongoing, well, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. As always, we look forward to the day we can wrap this podcast because the war has ended. In the meantime, we are honored to be your trusted source for information about events happening on and off the battlefield in Ukraine and immensely grateful for your continued support. Due to the sheer volume of content in today's episode, we will be releasing it in two parts. Part one will include the regional updates, and part two will include everything else. So with all of that out of the way, let's start part one with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, the Russian Federation armed forces are combat ineffective and, beyond Bakhmut, are only capable of point and localized attacks. Second, the Ukrainian defense of Bakhmut remains in a critical state and is fluid, though with defensive lines protecting the ground line of communication, called a G-lock, that's a supply line, stabilized. Third, we maintain that short of using chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear, also known as seaburn, weapons, The Russian military will continue doing everything possible to capture Bakhmut, regardless of the cost. Fourth, Russian forces are experiencing a theater-wide shortage of non-precision artillery munitions, particularly anti-tank guided missiles, or ATGMs. Fifth, the risk of a nuclear accident due to the de-energization of Ukraine's electrical grid remains as long as the Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, targets Ukraine's power industry. And finally, we maintain that the Kremlin is actively interfering with the governments of Moldova and Georgia to derail the European Union membership accession process and destabilize their current governments.
A quick content warning. This section does include brief descriptions of some of the atrocities discovered in Kyiv Oblast. One year ago yesterday, on April 2, 2022, in Cherniev, Ukrainian forces liberated Horodnya, with Russian troops blowing up the bridge over the Chibriz River and abandoning military equipment. Retreating Russian troops suffered heavy losses in Novibikiv and Shestovitsya. In Izium, Russian occupation forces consolidated their positions and entered an operational pause. Russian forces continued their retreat out of Sumy, crossing the border at Bilopilia and Novoslavitsky. Russian forces were confirmed to have withdrawn from Nedrechailiv on March 30th after residents staged an insurgency and threw Molotov cocktails at Russian convoys. In Mariupol, Russian, Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, and Chechen forces started attempting to bisect the city. Russian forces launched a large offensive in the Donbass, striking Severodonetsk, Rubizhne, Kremina, Hirske, Popazna, and Berestove. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky declared the Kyiv Oblast fully liberated. Pictures and videos emerged northwest of Kyiv, showing Russian forces had suffered devastating losses during their failed attack and subsequent retreat. At Chernobyl, the Ukrainian flag was raised over the facility. President Zelensky reportedly rejected an offer by the United States to provide M1 Abrams main battle tanks, citing they were too heavy for Ukrainian infrastructure. Russian envoy Andriy Kelin warned that British ships and aircraft carrying military aid bound for Ukraine are military targets, one of the many empty threats made by the Kremlin. Pictures and videos of Russian war crimes flooded social media, including from Motyzhin, where the executed and likely tortured bodies of the mayor, her husband, and her son were found in a shallow pit. The body of photojournalist Max Levin, who disappeared on March 13th, was found. In Bucha, investigators processed 240 corpses who all had been shot in the back of the head, including a 14-year-old child. Let's get some regional updates, starting with Kharkiv. In the Dvorichna operational area, the Russian MOD reported there was fighting among squad-sized units in the areas of Khryanikivka Masyutivka, Sinkivka, and Pershotravneve. There were no claims of territorial control changes. A geolocated video showed a Russian 2S4 Tsulpan 240mm self-propelled mortar destroyed by counter-battery fire east of Tavilshanka. According to the Oryx database, this is the seventh 2S4 destroyed since February 24, 2022, with only nine in service. The Russian Federation has 400 more in storage, but the state of combat readiness is unknown. Moving on to the Donbass region in Luhansk. In the Kremina operational area, Russian mercenary mill blogger Wargonzo reported another failed Russian attack in the direction of Makiivka. Otherwise, there were only positional fighting, harassment attacks, and artillery exchanges from east of Nevsky to west of Chervonopopivka. Russian and Ukrainian sources were in alignment that fighting near Kremina was limited to the forested areas in the direction of Terny, the Serebriansky Woods, and the Seversky Donetsk River floodplain west of Shiplivka. In the Lysychansk operational area, fighting continued northeast and east of Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk. Wargonzo had recently claimed that Ukrainian forces had limited success near Bilohorivka, and a geolocated video verified the claim.
The 2nd Army Corps continued to use tanks for indirect fire on Bilohorivka, with one destroyed by an anti-tank guided missile, or ATGM. In northeast Donetsk, in the Siversk operational area, fighting continued east of Verkhnogamyanskia with no change in the situation. In the Bakhmut operational area, PMC Wagner leader Yevgeny Prigozhin wrote, quote, We hoisted the Russian flag with the inscription, Good memory to Vladlin Tatarsky, and the flag of PMC Wagner on the city administration of Bakhmut. Legally, Bakhmut is taken. The enemy is concentrated in the western regions. End quote. Video recorded using infrared imaging showed that Prigozhin was on the front lines. There was significant debate on PMC Wagner's location, with the video shared near Nizhny Park, while the administration building is further south. Some assessment here. So our team was unaware that war was played like a childhood game of capture the flag. If it really is that simple, Ukraine needs to land a few paratroopers on top of the Kremlin to swap out the flag. Hey, Legally, they would control Moscow, and the war would be over. Based on our team's geolocation work, we've adjusted the map. North of Bakhmut, Russian mercenary millblogger Rybar reported that fighting in the area of Orikhovo-Vasilivka continued, with no change in the situation. PMC Wagner's attempts to advance on Bohdanivka and Khromova failed. In Bakhmut, PMC Wagner advanced deeper into the central district, with heavy fighting near Nizhny Park and by the Hotel Bakhmut. There weren't any notable territorial control changes in the northern part of the city or along Korsunskoho Street. PMC Wagner continued attacks on Ivanivske, which remained unsuccessful. In the Kostyantinivka operational area, Russian forces made a new attempt to improve their positions on the west bank of the Seversky-Donetsk-Donbass Canal in the direction of Predtechne without success. Kostyantinivka was hit by two Russian S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for a ground attack and four barrages of Uragan rockets fired by multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS. The daytime attack damaged 15 high-rise apartment buildings, 11 private homes, a school, and a city administration building. The attack on civilians and civilian infrastructure killed six and wounded 11. Some of the pictures are graphic, so viewer discretion is advised, but we do link to them in our full situation report on Patreon. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. In southwest Donetsk, We've updated the Russian objective to capturing Velika Novosilka, Vukhledar, Marinka, and Avdiivka, setting conditions to capture the rest of the oblast, and bringing the insurrection across southwestern Donetsk under control. In the Avdiivka operational area, Russian forces attempted to advance on Novokalinove without success. Organzo reported that Russian forces were attacking Ukrainian forces in Novobakhmutivka raising further questions on where the line of conflict is located. Rybar claimed that Russian forces were attacking from Krasnohorivka, but made no territorial control claims. Rybar also repeated its claim that Kamyanka had been captured and attacks on Avdiivka were being made from this direction. 
no other reliable or semi-reliable source has supported the claim. Russian troops with the 1st Army Corps continued their attempts to advance on Avdiivka from Opitne, Spartak, Kashtanova, and Krutabalka. South of Avdiivka, the 1st Army Corps continued attempts to advance on Sieverne, and fighting was reported, quote, in the area of Vodiana. Neither attack moved the line of conflict. Russian forces have now entered the seventh month of attempting to advance on Pervomaiske from Piski and remain unable to capture the village. In the Marinka operational area, fighting was limited to the central district of Marinka with no change to the situation. In the Vukhodar operational area, positional fighting was reported north of Mikilska and in the Mikilska Dutches. Russian forces shelled Khurakova, targeting the thermal power plant and damaging one of the 110 kilovolt connections to the power grid. Power was knocked out in the Pokrovska district. At the time of recording, repairs were ongoing. Moving on to Zaporizhia. The Russian objective has been updated to preventing a Ukrainian offensive into Zaporizhia and integrating captured territory into the Russian Federation. In the Orykhiv operational area, we adjusted the line of conflict south along the settlements of Novoandrievka, Sherbaki, and Mali Sherbaki. A geolocated video from Russian sources showed a drone-dropping psychological operational, or PSYOP, pamphlets near Ukrainian defensive positions further south than previously assessed. This does not represent new territorial gains and is likely territory that was contested in mid-January during a small and failed Russian offensive. The Zaporizhia Regional Military Administration reported 68 Russian fire missions along the entire line of conflict using tanks, multiple launch rocket systems, and artillery. Insurgents in Melitsopol reported that railroad yards were hit by rockets fired by HIMARS for the third time in the last seven days. The attack's success was not known at the time of recording, but Russian sources confirmed the area was hit. Once again, there was no update on the status of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, there were five vessels of the Black Sea fleet on patrol, including one frigate and one kilo-class submarine capable of launching up to 12-caliber cruise missiles in total. The last caliber cruise missile launch was on March 9th. In north and northeast Ukraine, in the Sumy region, Russian forces hit Nova Sloboda with mortars at 0500 hours local time, striking a milk delivery vehicle. A milkman and his assistant were instantly killed. The Romadas of Yunakivka, Khotin, Bilopilia, and Krasnopilia were hit by mortars and artillery shells. Russian forces targeted agricultural infrastructure and damaged six homes in Khotin. It was also reported that two ATGMs were fired by Russian forces on non-military targets in Krasnopilia, despite an acute shortage of anti-tank weapons where there is actual combat happening. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. United States Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov had their first direct conversation since July 2022. The Russian Foreign Ministry readout from the call reported that Blinken and Lavrov discussed the detention of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, whom Russia accused of espionage. 
Lavrov reportedly told Blinken that the media had, quote, inflated the story and that Gershkovich was allegedly caught trying to obtain classified information. The statement added that, quote, several issues of importance to both countries have also been discussed during the conversation, end quote. The U.S. State Department released a readout several hours later that was in alignment with the Kremlin, only adding that Blinken called on the Russian government to release Gershkovich and another detained U.S. citizen, disgraced former Marine Paul Whelan, immediately. A special assessment here. We see signs that Ukraine is having problems staffing its military. We don't have insights into whether these issues are due to preparations for the anticipated spring counteroffensive or because after 14 months of total war, the pool of eligible recruits is shrinking. Some announced changes make social and military sense while suggesting wider problems. After the declaration of martial law on February 24, 2022, the Ukrainian armed forces were given a blanket stop-loss order, which included regular conscripts from 2020 and 2021. Under Ukrainian law, conscripts cannot be used in frontline combat. This has created several problems. Initially, conscripts were given a pay bonus of 30,000 hryvnias, or about 818 U.S. dollars, to support their normal monthly income of 352 to 705 hryvnia. That's about 10 to 20 dollars. The pay bonus was ended in the fall of 2022 due to budget constraints, creating wide-scale discontent and leaving conscripts in limbo. Under martial law, they can't be discharged and are paid poverty wages. Another problem is that individuals conscripted into the Ukrainian military cannot be mobilized, creating discontent within the regular ranks. Mobilized Territorial Guard troops receive only two to four weeks of training and are then sent to the front. People conscripted before 2022, some with almost three years of non-combat military experience now, cannot be utilized. The way Ukrainian law is written, even if conscripts want to volunteer for combat duty, they are forbidden because of the terms of their military contract. To solve these problems, a group of deputies of the Verkhovna Rada has proposed amending Chapter 12 of Ukrainian law, entitled On Military Duty and Military Service, regarding the completion of fixed-term military service during martial law. The draft law proposes that any conscript that has reached or exceeded their initial contract period and met all their service requirements be released from the military. However, once released, the conscripts must register with their regional commissariat office within five days. During their meeting with the commissar, the issue of being released, mobilized, moved to a new service contract in a non-combat role, or becoming part of the reserves, quote, will be resolved. The deputies pushing for the change argue that this will increase the pool of already trained young fighters who are already at military standards. Another change being considered is for field commissions. Under martial law, Non-commissioned officers, or NCOs, can receive field promotions to junior officer ranks. This is not an uncommon military practice. Under Ukrainian law, field commissions cannot be issued to a competent NCO if they don't hold a college degree. The problem with this requirement is that most people who hold degrees are in the officer corps. Ukrainian officials want to change the law to remove the college requirement and enable field commissions to junior lieutenant, 
which would be equal to second lieutenant in the United States military except for the Navy, where the rank is ensign. While this is a logical change to existing law, the stated reason was not for equity or to create more opportunities, but because of an increased shortage of officers in the field. Russia's winter offensive didn't meet a single operational objective to capture the remainder of the Donbass by March 31st. This failure lies at the feet of the chief of the general staff of the Russian armed forces, Valery Gerasimov, who was given total responsibility for the Russian armed forces in Ukraine on January 8, 2023. Despite Russia holding a numerical advantage in personnel, armor, and artillery, the smaller, better-equipped, and better-trained Ukrainian military fought a competent defense. The failed offensive wasted hundreds of pieces of heavy military equipment, precision munitions, and tens of thousands of Russian soldiers. A video on Russian social media accounts that has been alleged to have been made by the Ukrainian 53rd Separate Motor Infantry Brigade appealing for relief due to Russian soldiers in Avdiivka has been labeled a fake by unit commanders. While we cast a critical eye on official denials from both combatants when videos like this are released, one glaring problem supports the assessment that the video is fake. There are no Russian troops in Avdiivka, and all G-locks into the operational area remain open. And that's it for part one of today's episode. Part two will be released as soon as I finish making it. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.